I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So two questions today, both on China. One, what about China's debt? Steve had previously said it was something we should be worried about, but has he changed his mind on that? And secondly, China is becoming a lot more authoritarian, even more so than before and focusing more on its domestic economy as well. What would the world be like if we traded less with China? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Now, a fine example of China doing what we in the West would never do is the requirement that for all computer games players, they have to register if they're under 18 years old and be monitored to ensure they only play three hours of computer games a week, one hour on a Friday night, one hour on Saturday, one hour on Sunday, nothing at all on school nights. Social control, you might think. I know a lot of parents secretly think, well, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> I wish we could get our kids down to just three hours of computer games a week. But we can add it, of course, to the list of the ways that Chinese authorities monitor and control their population. So we'll look at how we continue to trade with a country like that and whether we'll reach a breaking point where we say enough is enough uh, we've got to look at human rights and all that stuff and, uh, and and that's going to have an impact on who we trade with but before that Hillian Macbeth uh, one of our listeners Steve says I know you identified China as one of the countries likely to experience a crisis along with Canada Australia Hong Kong and so forth do you have an update on the private sector debt in China? And then on top of that, I'd like to add, you know, whether a more authoritarian China will see less trade with the, with the West and how that's going to change the global community. So how is, is China changing, uh, in other words? That's basically what we're going to look at. How, how is our relationship and how is the country changing? But let's start with debt because uh, they've got it all, haven't they? They've got government debt. They've got local authority debt. They've got private debt. And yet still, despite all this debt, their economy just seems to keep growing. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, just to give the absolute statistics on it, um, the level of government debt in China, and of course, if any, anywhere is um, able to successfully uh, carry out the basic ideas of MMT, uh, it's it's China, you know, in, in the sense that they're not worried about, they don't have any, any stupid politicians complaining about budget uh, in, in budget deficits in uh, hindering future generations in China. Uh, that's 67% of GDP, and that's uh, risen from back, in the, back when the data began, which is 1996, from 22% of GDP. So it's basically tripled over the last, uh, mm. uh, you know, over the industrialization period of China, but it's still on a global sense quite relatively low. Uh, private debt, and funnily enough, there's data on private debt going right back to 1986, which I find a bit remarkable because I think that's still during the days of the Gang of Four. Uh, but that, that was 64% of GDP. It's now 220%. Wow. That, puts China's, that puts China's private debt level at the level of countries like France, uh, Australia, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The interesting thing is when you break the debt down, you, you might think given all the stuff about housing bubbles in China, we know that house prices have been rising ridiculously over there. It's 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 actually predominantly corporate debt. So again, the the the, the series, 
that the Bank of International Settlements provides uh, starts in 2006 for China in terms of breaking down private debt into household and uh, and corporate. So the, there's a collected series going back to 1985, and there's the a separated series from 2006. And uh, household debt was 10% of GDP back in 2006. It's now 60%. So that's quite a you know a six-fold increase. Mm. But that puts the level of household debt in China at about half the level of household debt in Australia, for example which is, I think, a legitimate world record holder. I think the Swiss are taking steroids, possibly. In the, you know, you know, the Swiss, the only country to beat Australia in a household debt to GDP ratio is Switzerland. And from what I've heard from friends of mine in Switzerland and, the, and, the, and people working in the banking sector there, a lot of it's, uh, you know, uh, the old Swiss gnomes, hide, hiding the wealth and hiding the debt of the, the rich in Switzerland. So uh, I don't take the Swiss numbers seriously, but the Australian ones, of course, different story. Uh, but the corporate debt is the interesting one. And corporate debt, even right back in 2006, was 100% of GDP. Mm. Now, that exceeds America's level. It's currently 160%. And interestingly enough, and this this is one reason I, I take the data, I mean, you've, you've got to be, you know, question data coming out of China. Um, a lot of people that I, I know who specialise in China use data on, for example, energy consumption uh, rather than GDP to work out what the GDP actually is rather than what the Chinese claim mm, it is. Interesting. But, yeah. yeah. But uh, the, the, the data shows a very similar phenomenon in China to what you find in the West as well, and that's a dramatic increase in corporate debt when COVID hit. So you, uh, the level of corporate debt uh, was peaked at... Uh, 162% of I think I'd say 160 yeah 162% of GDP back in 2016 it was trending down uh, and you get to 2020 which of course is the beginning of covid it's down to 150% of GDP and to put that in context that's corporate debt at the same level as private debt in the USA so a mm. higher level of debt by but then it rose rapidly uh, and in the if you go from 100, 150% in uh, at the end of 19, uh, 2019, uh, then it's uh, one, uh, one quarter later, 153, 156, 150, 160, 162. Uh, but then it tops that at 163%. Now it's heading down again. Now, of course, we know that China is one of the few countries, even again, you know, being sceptical about the statistics, China's lockdown worked to keep COVID under control. Uh, I think what China's total number of cases is, has it cracked 100,000? It's, it's ludicrous. But I mean, new cases, as they say, is down to zero, don't they? They're back to zero COVID. Whether they can maintain that or not, I, I don't know. But the, um, yeah. but the, but the, the, the reason why they're getting this big increase in, 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 uh, in corporate debt, obviously, is because they are making it easy for people. So whenever, uh, there's concerns about liquidity, for example, the People's Bank of China steps in with their, you know, what they call their medium term lending facility, which is basically a mm. one, one year loan to the, to the commercial banks. They just, uh, you know, they they they've kept that low. We said two point nine five percent. Obviously, it's not as low as it is elsewhere, uh, but they uh, but they've also sort of said to bank to commercial banks, you know, lower your reserve requirements. We're not too fussed about that. Uh, yeah, well, so that's, that's, that's a bit of a waste of time, but no, but yeah. So lend out, so lend out more money, and if you and if you've and if lending out more money means you've got you know cash problems. Don't worry, borrow it from us for a year and uh, at, at a low interest rate. So uh, it doesn't sound enormously sustainable, but but I mean that's the way they're managing to to 
put out these money to companies so that they can increase their debt. But there's a danger in that, isn't there? Because aren't they going to hit a, a point at which these the, this debt could all come crumbling down? So there's a company, Evergrande, for example. It's one of the biggest companies in the world. It's got 1.95 trillion yuan debt, which is over 300 billion US dollars, more than the GDP of Finland. If a company like that fails, and it and it could, uh, that's going to have a flow-on effect, isn't it, through through a country like China? But I guess the the assumption is that the the uh, the Reserve Bank will do whatever it can to stop that happening. Too big to fail. Oh yeah, and all what you get is then the the, the organisation gets taken over by the by the government, yeah. and then reorganised and sold back into the private sector at a later date, which is the sort of thing which should happen. Uh, in 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 a, in um, any any uh, functional capitalist economy, you go into receivership and try to, in the process of receivership, revive it such that it can be restarted afterwards after after the necessary debt write off has occurred. Um, and China's more likely to do that effectively than most Western countries. Uh, but, but, I mean, that's, not, that's you, not good for risk management, is it? I mean, if, you, if, you, if you're earning a company oh, and you're it, told it, it, you can get as big as you want, get a cheap loan, look, if it all comes crashing down, don't worry, the government will buy you and uh, and sell you off again. Uh, so, you know, if well, you've it got... Depends, it depends on whether you, get, whether you get kicked out of the company and lose your shares and your shares go to zero and your bondholders lose their money. Um, this is the, And I don't know the extent to which that happens in China, but that's what you'd want to have happen. Mm. Uh, the, 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 the company continues as potentially going concern the existing shareholders and bondholders lose their shirts. That's that's the correct way to go about it. And I, I, you know, as I said, I, I, I don't know the extent to which that actually happens in China. There's bound to be an enormous amount of, uh, if you're you know, a favoured member of the party, then you're not going to lose your shirt. But if you're not a favoured member, you can end up in jail. And they've seen a fair bit of that happening as well recently. So, OK, so that's corporate debt, uh, which is growing and is perhaps not. I mean, you'd be thinking corporate debt growing is a is a good thing if you've got a growing economy because it's it's there helping sustain growth. I mean, you, normally that would be taken as a good sign. Well, corporations, you know, at least when corporations borrow, they're they're doing it to produce something they can actually sell. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this is going to be uh, you know, housing speculation stuff as well. You, we've stopped talking about the um, the sky, the uh, abandoned skyscraper residences in residences in in China, the, but they're still there, and a, a lot of this there's a, there's a there's a way in which China's let itself get infected by the same disease the West has, which is people think that their savings are tied up in the value of real estate and therefore the government's now feeling a bit of pressure to make sure real estate prices keep on rising. Uh, so that that is that is partially where a bit of madness is coming from. Mm. But uh, Even but though there's not, again, much, not much of a market for it because a lot of people do own their home uh, and a lot of them own it outright because, you know, in the uh, – it was the 80s or the 90s, I think uh, – you know, the, basically people were – back then, a lot of properties were government-owned and then they sold them off to people at, uh, at very low rates so they, you know, so they could afford to buy them. And and so that skewed the housing market somewhat. And so there might be a, a big increase in house prices, but uh, but it's, it's, it's people selling houses at a great value because they're asset-rich because they've basically been sitting on a property that they bought for a song. Uh, and oh, then again, I mean, I, I, you know, I, have, I have been in you know, my, one of my um, – uh, store friends, ex ex girlfriend, uh, was one of the people who bought one of those uh, you know, newly uh, apartment in a, in, a, in a set of sky high rises in a third third tier city, high population less than less than th- th- five million people, I think, and 
you know, the, the thing was never going to be finished and it was then on to the next property development. So there is a property bubble in China and there are companies which are making, did make a large amount of money out of it and they could re rely upon the house prices continuing to rise there. So that's, that's the, the, the suspect side of both household debt and corporate debt. But that's bad, that's bad regulation, isn't it? That's, that's making that happen. Ah, well, no, no, nobody – can you find, point to good regulation on house prices? <laughs> no, nowhere in the world. Yeah, yeah. good point. Uh, uh, but uh, but a, a lot of the corporate debt is for financing investment. And, I mean, the people often ask, why did Japan fall over after the uh, after 1990? And, of course, there was their private debt bubble. They, they actually reached a peak of 225% of GDP, uh, which is higher. Let's see, did China beat them? Let's see. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, the Chinese topped that at 224% of GDP. That was in the middle of... Uh, of, of last year and it's now trending down. Uh, the, the, the Japanese hit 225% of GDP in the aftermath of the, the uh, collapse in 1990. There was still a bit of upwards momentum in debt levels. Um, but it, it, again, the same sort of pattern applied, mainly corporate debt, not a large amount of household debt, despite the fact that there was a housing bubble. Um, but the corporate debt, a large part of it was because Japanese corporations were debt financed predominantly. You had these you know, units called karetsus, industrial units like Mitsubishi and, and so on, where there'd be Mitsubishi Bank, which would provide working capital to Mitsubishi corporations. And therefore, rather than having a large equity base, they had a large private debt base. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know China as, as well as I know the, the Japanese story, but there's, you, know, you can get uh, real inside information on Japan much more easily than China. Uh, but it's quite possible a lot of this debt is financing the sort of uh, corporate expansion that occurs in China as they've been industrializing. And on that front, I mean, the success in industrialization is breathtaking. Mm. Uh, speaking as somebody who went there in 1981, 82, and then went back and I think the first time I went back after that was 2016 or thereabouts. I mean, Jesus Christ, yeah. the difference in the country. And, and, and it did it, 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 a huge increase in the industrial sophistication of the, of the place. So whatever comes out of the financial side, China has used the whole globalization uh, push uh, to dramatically increase its industrial level. And what I expect to come out of uh, what's happening happening now with COVID locking off, you know, long-term supply chains and so on, uh, they may well take the engineer's approach of reorienting their manufacturing to local consumption. Yeah. And well, that has always been, yeah, that's been the aim anyway, hasn't it? To try and yeah, boost, yeah. The, boost the domestic economy and be less reliant on, on uh, the export economy. But, mm. the, but the money that's funding that is, uh, is coming from bank loans. This, this corporate debt is coming from bank loans, and the banks are, by and large, owned by the government. So does that mm. is that does that make it really almost just an extension of modern monetary theory? And I want to get back to talking about you know how how much of you know what the government is doing is actually MMT, but I mean it, it's it, it, in effect it's you know it's just government money through an intermediary, isn't it? Which the government also owns. Yeah, and like if you look at the the, the data at the end of the global financial or the, in the middle of the global financial crisis is really the the give there because. And, and again, levels of credit growth in China are astronomical. It's the highest rate of, rate of growth of credit, I think, in, glo in global history, including Japan. The rate of change of, of, uh, of, of, China, of Chinese private debt uh, through the period uh, from 2000 to 2010 is about three times as fast as it was in, in Japan during its bubble economy days. But when you hit the global financial crisis hits in that stage, 
private credit was roughly equivalent to 20% of GDP. It then plunged uh, during the crisis from 20% to about 15%. And then this is when the government got in there and basically told the banks to lend to anybody with a pulse. And it went from, let's see what the time period was, it went from 15.5% uh, of GDP at the end of 2008 to in 2000 and end of 2009, 38%. So mm. an enormous, and that was basically the government saying lend to anybody. And that basically gave you the boom which started the, the whole, um, you know, empty skyscraper syndrome for the for residential accommodation, but also like, you know, a, a huge amount of other uh, developments in China, including the uh, the, the, the growth of the, of the high-speed rail, et cetera, et cetera, uh, so China China uses both its government funding and its bank funding as a sort of form of extended MMT. But they do have a share market as well. I mean, people are buying shares in these companies. Who wants to buy shares in the company if it is so highly leveraged? Because at some point it's going to come back to bite. Either, uh, you know, the situation as you described where the company collapses and the government buys it, or it just has to pay off the debt and therefore it can't take on any more debt, which is sort of like become dependent on, uh, and, and growth has to slow. And, and then, you know, that's when share prices start to fall. So why, why would people be buying into these companies? Oh, two reasons. One is because you you know you don't get a, a decent return on your bank account in China. So everybody either invests in real estate or shares. Uh, there's an enormous amount of leverage speculation in shares as well. I don't know the level of margin debt in China, but I've got a feeling it's substantially higher than in America. Uh, and the Shanghai share market is like a wild west share market compared to even to the New York Stock Exchange. Mm. So the volatility there is huge. Uh, but again, in some ways, the government is underwriting a lot of this stuff. Um, and and uh, Z doesn't want uh, an unhappy Chinese populace. So if you start seeing share prices collapse and then that leading to, to private sector unrest, uh, then I think you'd see uh, policy to reinflate that particular bubble again. But he is trying, isn't he? And I guess it's a long road, but he is trying to uh, in introduce more regulation, not just in in the finance sector, but also in, in the way companies behave as well. So, for example, yeah. uh, the way they, uh, you know, so it's more international standards, for example, on things like privacy. Uh, so he's, you know, cracking down on the uh, on cybersecurity uh, and the technology industry uh, over privacy uh, and uh, also, you know, cracking down on monopolies and uh, you know, so I mean, I guess there's a an aim, or it looks like there's an aim, to try and uh, get China to operate more on international norms. Although, ironically, uh, foreign investors are looking at all of that, going, "Oh my God, that's more regulation and control." Uh, who knows how far this is going to go? We better steer away from it. Yeah, but uh, I mean, equally, he's, he's putting pressure about the level of inequality in China. And this is one way reason that, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a, a cynic. <laughs> that might be a surprise to you to hear that. Good Lord. Uh, but as, good Lord. Good Lord. But a cynic about what we call democracy in the West, uh, because uh, democracy basically means you get the best government the corporate sector can buy. And, uh, you know, the governments in America, Australia, in, in Europe, uh, England, I mean, uh, they're travesties in terms of representing people's actual will. Now, of course, there's a one-party state in China, and I don't know whether they actually hold elections there. I think the elections inside the Communist Party occur, but I don't know the elections any broader than that. But, you know, you vote for one party, which one are you going to get? Um, 
so that on a superficial level, that means less democracy, less responsiveness to what the people themselves want. But the reality of that is that uh, if you don't get what you want in China, you protest. And there's a massive number of strikes and demonstrations that occur in various parts of China. And the Communist Party itself, which is on the scale of the Boy Scouts, this is what I learned when I was there back in 81, 82. I think at this time in 81, 82, the population of China was roughly a billion people. And the Communist Party had 30 million members, meaning one in every 30 people was a member of the Communist Party, uh, which is crazy levels of, uh, of, 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 of uh, membership. But what it meant was you didn't know whether the person you were talking to was or was not a member of the Communist Party, but you were mm. going to hold your guards very close to your chest in case they found out that they were and you'd get reported for your views. But equally, what it meant was there were all these people monitoring. What are the people saying? What are they really thinking? And you, partly a suppression of that, but partly an awareness of it occurred. And consequently, the, the, the Chinese government is quite frankly probably more responsive to what its people want than the the, 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 than the uh, governments of the West. Yeah, and uh, it, it's it's counteracted to some extent by having an authoritarian like Xi in charge, uh, uh, but that that still means that there's a, a way in which the political system taps into what the grassroots feelings are, are well, like. Yeah, it is. I mean, you said the word authoritarian and it is, but then is it, you know, is it is it authoritarianism for good? So, for example, they stop foreign companies profiting from providing education to China. They, they, if you were providing mm. education services, you couldn't do it for profit. Uh, they're looking at uh, baby formula, uh, under, they put that under attack, basically stopping women breastfeeding. <laughs> which is bad for kids, yeah. apparently. Yeah. Uh, uh, I was I was on formula, and look look how that turned out. I'm uh, walking, oh, terrible! Walking, yeah, I mean, got one advertisement for for breastfeeding. Obviously, ever. you need more breasts. Exactly, yeah, I need them early on in my life. Absolutely, uh, e-cigarettes. Hmm. They, I think they're saying that they don't want people to be sold e-cigarettes if they weren't previously smoking. So it can only be there as a as a preventative measure. So hmm. all of that sort of stuff, which on the face of it, say is, is is you know is rather good, but then foreign investors are looking at that and going, oh, this is uh, this you know this is sovereign risk stuff but which raises the question why would china care about having foreign investors if they can create the money through their own banks to support the growth of their economy why do they want foreign money coming in yeah and this is often they want foreign technology not foreign money i mean i think one of my favorite stories involves a delegation of of chinese communist party officials to australia back in the 80s or late, late 80s, early 90s, yeah. and one of, the, one of the guys disappeared into the bathroom and they got worried he's in there so long when there's something going wrong, and they found him in there taking apart the dual flush toilet to work on how it worked. Um, <laughs> quite, quite seriously. And, yeah. and then uh, a, a huge part of the move to get uh, the industrialization to, to have globalized, you know, basically American corporations shifting their production to China, taking advantage of low wages and then re-exporting the goods back through a loophole in the American trade law to benefit developing economies. Uh, a huge part was let's get the technology as fast as we can. And they've done it. I mean, the, the mm. technological level of China is, you know, eons, it, it, it's, its technology is pretty much on a par with America. Um, and that is incredible transformation from 30 or 40 years ago. So largely, they, they, they want the technology and they want the marketing links. They don't need or want the money. Well, and they are leading the innovation in lots of, uh, lots of areas now as well, aren't they? So it's not like they're stealing stuff from overseas. They, they, you know, they like a lot of artificial intelligence, a lot of drones and stuff like that all came out of, out of China. So that was stuff that, you know, that they've originated themselves rather than stealing from elsewhere. But what yeah. happens if, uh, if China, you mentioned it yourself, 
that you know they they tend their focus more on their domestic economy more than export uh, an export based economy um what's that going to do to the rest of the world that's become dependent on all of these exports from uh, uh, from china and suddenly you know the the goods we take for granted you know very cheap television sets and stuff like that in, in, become more expensive yeah yeah because yeah. because yeah. they're selling them for domestic market more and uh, and you don't yeah you don't have the domestic you don't have the the volume anymore i mean if there is a breakdown in global supply chains then uh, the important thing for the chinese is going to be maintaining uh, a supply to keep the populace happy in China. Mm. Um, you know, if, uh, their, their capacity to be nationalist about this far exceeds what happens in the West. And it's going to help their GDP. So household consumption is about 70% of GDP in OECD countries. In China, it's about 35% because most of the GDP is coming from exports. But if you if you push household consumption up, it's going to help, you know, whether GDP is a meaningful figure or not. So you can see why the... Uh, why the why the emphasis but i mean conversely that's going to be very damaging to gdp outside china uh yeah well it, 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 we've, american corporations were quite happy to screw american workers to take advantage of low wage in china yeah. and increase their profit rate at the expense of aggregate demand back in back in america no qualms whatsoever um as i said the chinese have done this uh, specifically because of the unrest in the, in the country itself about the pathetic state of its uh, of its people uh, under the under Mao and the Gang of Four, and uh, that desire to, to raise the living standards of China of China, the average Chinese person to the point where it's comparable with the West, that's been the driving force behind uh, China's industrialization. And a large part of what Z is talking about now is reducing the inequality. And they you know they're putting some of their billionaires behind bars uh, in in a very scary and dangerous way. Uh, in a lot of in a lot of cases, but at the same time, uh, they're taking inequality more seriously than it's been taken in the West. So the West is going to be paying more for stuff, and uh, this gets back to what we were talking about last week. Where you know, are we going to mm. find that consumption is going to be a more expensive uh, behaviour, uh, and uh, you know, are we going to have to consume less? And is is China going to be part and parcel of that? Yeah, I think it is, and uh, and and then it, 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 you know, the, it, it, we're talking also about how an authoritarian. Uh, economy or the government can potentially cope with climate change more easily by imposing rationing uh, with much less protest than you'd get in uh, in so-called uh, uh, libertarian mm. countries. And I think that's going to apply with China. That you'll be able, if if you, if you have to be told you've got to consume less, uh, then China can do that very rapidly to its people in a way that uh, the West cannot do. And, and you, you know, you, you would get the, the, the climate equivalent of COVIDiots coming out, complaining about it in the West. That will ha- happen to a far lesser degree in China. Uh, and therefore, they've got, I think, more capacity to cope with the uh, the limitations climate change will put on them as well. Well, they would find themselves behind bars with the billionaires, wouldn't they, if they uh, were too vocal? Uh, let's mm. look at government debt then. So you, you you talked about how that had increased so much, particularly during uh, COVID. Going into it, though, it was pretty large, obviously, as well. Going into it, half of that debt, the figures I've got here, show that it's actually local government debt rather than central government debt. Now, so they, mm. they, they can't print their own money. And there's not a lot of transparency in this this local government debt. We talked about the shadow banking sector years ago when we were talking about China, uh, because you know they use dubious financing vehicles to uh, to to generate this debt, to fund this debt for these for these local governments. 
that could be a problem yeah. as well, couldn't it? I mean, that, that that's been the, uh, the, the, the an area of danger for some time in China, and uh, I mean that could just implode potentially. Yeah, I mean because they they, they don't have the cash revenue anymore. I mean, I, when I was in China uh, with my then partner, um, uh, one thing which fascinated me is how are they paying for these developments on the uh, periphery of these major cities. And what you would find most of these super skyscraper things would be built out, uh, slightly outside the, the main city confines. And it turned out that, that, that was uh, the, the financing for the local government would come from selling it to property developers. Mm. Uh, so they'd sell land at a, at a markup. It was basically vacant land. Uh, you'd sell it as a, as a markup, and that would finance the local government and its own activities within the normal city boundary. Not a sustainable then, model, then? <laughs> no, not a sustainable model, no. Um, uh, so it could fall over. But again, uh, it, it, you know, creating the money is not China's problem. Uh, and, and because it's but it is for the local, so, it is for the local government though. For the locals, like, it is. Yeah, but they they can be bailed out as selectively as the top leadership wants to do it. Yeah, yeah. So well, okay, but I mean, but but then it, that is a step away from you know. The, it sounds like they're trying to clean up their game a little bit by introducing more regulation uh, in mm. the finance sector, so that then then you know they are building a sustainable future. They can't keep on behaving that way. I mean, modern even though the money is coming from modern monetary theory, modern monetary theory mm. is based on the assumption that money that is generated is used for some useful purpose. It's there to create jobs, not to build uh, massive sky unoccupied skyscrapers uh, as a way of funding local funding local governments. So there's got to be a shift, hasn't there? I think I think there has to be, and and, and then, um, but again, I just think China's we've got more capability to bring about that shift than a country hobbled by the by the accoutrements, but 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 not the reality of democracy, and. Uh, with a, an ideology of liberty rather than an ideology of collective collective uh, growth, and in many ways you can see what Xi is doing now about the inequality there, emphasising that collective side of Chinese ideology, uh, where you, you try doing the same thing in the states, and of course the you'd be out the billionaires would outmanoeuvre you, uh, and 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 put up a um, a policy can a, 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 a public relations campaign to undermine the the laws themselves, which wouldn't get passed by the by the Senate and the the House of Reps. Uh, they, they aren't problems China faces. But it's, there's a sinister side behind all of this, though, isn't there? Because if if China is more inward looking now, is it's it's going to uh, be less reliant on international trade going forwards because it's got its own its its own domestic market. Uh, so it becomes much more self sufficient. Uh, they build up their military. Uh, for example, Taiwan is spending 1.4 billion. It was in the news this week. 1.4 billion on new fighter jets, but which the Americans are very happy to sell them, of course, because mm-hmm. they're worried about increasing military activity by China. And you know, there's the islands in the South China Sea. Uh, you know, they, uh, they. You know, at some point, China might say, "Yeah, we want to take Taiwan back. It's always been ours." Uh, that could lead to you know an escalation of conflict. In any case. Uh, there could be an arms race with with China, which we've not had before, because it's growing into a uh, an economy which is uh, you know self sufficient, less dependent on on international trade. And we know international trade is one thing that stops wars. The other thing that which fascinates me about the Taiwan side of things, though, is that Taiwan's the world's leading manufacturer of chips, uh, and and that you've got to you know you, you both credit the, um, the Taiwanese uh, industrialists because they they have uh, developed a 
you know, an advantage even over America without the need for the, the relocation of production trick. It's, uh, right. you know, all the more reason for uh, China to say, well, that's ours. Why we don't want to yes, pay, we don't want to pay, that's, mm, we don't want yeah, to pay I, for these. I, we want to, we want to own them. All we want, all we want, to, we, we don't want to import them. We want them to be produced domestically in a way that is to make China, Taiwan part of part of China. So, uh, and if we're seeing, we're seeing now a shortage of chips, uh, which is was partially driven by droughts in Taiwan that apparently have ceased now. Uh, I've got to check up and see whether that's so or not. But apparently, the the droughts that were affecting uh, China's chip manufacturing because the chip manufacturing is incredibly intensive on water. I mean, one little thing I just you, you learn a little snippets that you could never learn without the help of the things like YouTube these days. And part of the reason that uh, um, chip manufacturing requires water is that water is used to focus the beams. Uh, for the for the you know, sub micron level of of um, uh, manufacturing of computer chips, the technology is self apparently coming from the Netherlands, so I believe. Um, but uh, with the drought, that that means you you don't actually have an essential input for uh, producing the the chips. Uh, so that's partly the chip shortage. Now that may not not happen anymore. But if if China realizes that it's dependent upon Taiwan for an absolutely essential component, which it itself has not managed to produce domestic equivalents, then yeah, that, that could be a reason we see uh, them saying, "Well, we're going to annex Taiwan." So uh, yeah, exciting times ahead. Yeah, they, so we can almost leave on a high note as usual, uh, not mm-hmm. uh, on this one. But, but also just the money, I'm not quite sure what the money supply is uh, in China, but I imagine with all of this uh, you know, money that's been created to, to, to fund this debt, it's, it would be increasing enormously, wouldn't it? And, and therefore, wouldn't we expect that if this was to continue, that we'd see a, a you know, continued devaluation of the yuan? And, and what impact does that have? Maybe less if they're involved less in international trade. Maybe they're less concerned about the, uh, the value of their currency. Well, they're also running a trade surplus, so devaluation doesn't tend to hit countries running trade surpluses. Yeah, for now. But will they always, will yeah. they're always going to run a trade surplus, aren't they? Well, the, the, the more, the more, yeah. With, with the manufacturing base they've got, um, you know, I don't. I've got to actually take a look at the. We um, uh, might flesh this out at a later stage by taking a look at the China uh, in the uh, MIT Atlas of Economic Complexity to see what they actually import. Um, it, it, it's, it's, you know, it's such a huge country, both population-wise and area. So many resources it has domestically. Mm. Uh, it, it can. Uh, consider shifting from being relied upon exports to uh, thinking, okay, well, forget about, relatively forget about exports and produce, produce domestically. Um, uh, it, it's it's got potentially got more capacity to insulate itself than a country like the UK, for example, which has to import thirty percent of its food. Mm, yeah, or oh, more. And and it, and is Australia buggered if if China becomes much more self dependent and uh, doesn't need any uh, Australian coal or iron ore? Well. That, that, that kind of comes down to the, the quality of ore, and in some cases that's Australia's saving grace, that the, the stuff that's been eroded away and, uh, and deposited courtesy of uh, you know, droughts and rains over, over, over eons, uh, Australia tends to have higher quality iron ore and higher-quality high coal as well. So, uh, but but if, if, for now, but if China decides to cut back on coal, which I think it's, it, it, it could do very rapidly if you start seeing... Uh, you know, climatic catastrophes occurring, uh, then it's going to put the pre- uh, 
primary emphasis on domestic coal rather than imported from Australia, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, let's finish off where we started because the question was really about, from Hilliard, was about, uh, you know, you'd identified China as one of those countries that was going to experience a crisis. But from what you're saying, uh, you know, because of their whole MMT approach, their ability to print money in their own domestic economy, uh, in their own sovereign currency, uh, there's not going to be a crisis. Yeah, they can they can continue maintaining it, and they're actually more likely to write off debt. You know, the version of what I'm talking about in terms of a debt jubilee is more likely in China than uh, than than uh, Western nations, where the finance sector dominates the politicians. All right. Well, interesting to watch how that all unfolds over the coming years. Good to talk, Steve. Okay. Next week again. Yep. Yeah, not sure what we're going to talk about next week. If you've got any suggestions, please drop us a line. It's going to be interesting, though, isn't it, if China does sort of default on its debt or just write it all off or just continues to rack up more debt using modern monetary theory, uh, whether we uh, in the West start to say, well, okay, maybe this is the way, maybe the finance industry needs to have less influence and we need to change the way we deal with debt. Um, Don't hold your breath. Uh, You might turn blue. That's it for this week. I'm Phil Dobby with Steve Keen again next week. Thanks for listening. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.